1: I'm Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Earlier this month, U.S. President Joe Biden signed the Chips and Science Act, a bill purportedly meant to revive U.S. dominance in research and development. We used to rank number one in the world in R&D, now we rank number nine, Biden said at the signing ceremony. China was number eight decades ago, now they are number two. And a recent study from Japan's science ministry reported that China now leads the world not just in quality of scientific research, but in quality too. The success of the U.S. and perhaps China into the future is due to the Research University, an academic institution that offers professors the freedom to study and to research, and students the freedom to learn, leading to high-quality academic output. Those universities are the subject of Empires of Ideas, Creating the Modern University from Germany to America to China, written by Professor William Kirby and published by Harvard University Press. William Kirby is Spangler Family Professor of Business Administration and T.M. Chang Professor of China Studies at Harvard University, as well as Chair of the Harvard China Fund and Faculty Chair of the Harvard Center Shanghai. His many books include Can China Lead? Reaching the Limits of Power and Growth. Today, Bill and I talk about the research university, Humboldt, Harvard, Berkeley, Tsinghua, Nanjing, and University of Hong Kong. We'll also discuss what it means for China and Chinese institutions to play a bigger role in world academia. How might that change things? So, Bill, thank you so much for joining me today on the Asian Review of Books podcast. I'd like to start with a simple question. Um, Why write a book about the university and the research university specifically? Well, thank you uh,
0: very much, Nicholas, for having me on the podcast. It's a great question. Of course, if you're a scholar at a university, as I have been for 40 years, then, of course, being interested in universities and how they work uh, is important. Uh, I've been fortunate to work in great research universities as well, and on three continents. But this book came out of several intersecting uh, uh, events. One was the time that I served as Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences here at Harvard, where I came to know this university and our competitors extremely well. Arts, Arts and Sciences at Harvard is about half of Harvard University. But then also the experience I had, I went to the 200th anniversary of the founding of the first great research university, the University of Bergen, uh, founded in 1810, uh, and a university that would become the model for all serious universities in the next two centuries. And I went to this 200th anniversary, and the president of the university, now called the Humboldt University, welcomed all of the guests by saying, and I quote, Nobody would take my university as a model for anything today. And I began to think, of course, he was very quickly no longer the president of Humboldt University, uh, uh, saying this on his way out as a ruler. But uh, I began to think of how do not just countries, but also universities and university systems rise and fall? I'd been educated in the United States, in Germany, and in greater China. Uh, I have worked in universities in all three countries. And the fact is that German universities set global standards without question in the 19th and early 20th century. They were absolutely the best. American universities by the end of the 20th century were very widely believed to be the global leaders. And the question then is, in this realm, as in others, will China be the one that defines excellence in the 21st century? This is about the rise and fall of nations in some sense through the work of universities or through the lens, I think it is better said, uh, of universities by the institutions uh, that really are both internal and external metrics of success and influence. And when you think about it, There isn't a country that has been a leading power uh, from the 18th century on, think of France in the 18th century, Germany and Britain in the 19th century, the United States in the 20th century, that has not also been a pace setter and a trendsetter in culture and in education. Uh, So it has to do with where we have been and where we
1: are going. So- it maybe it's worth asking a definitional question, which is kind of what exactly is a research university in your view?
0: Okay, well, the the major distinction, um, universities are or alt as the Germans would say. And of course they date to medieval times, the oldest ones in Italy. Uh, you have enduringly great universities in Britain like Oxford and Cambridge, but it was the invention of the modern research university in Berlin Uh, beginning in 1810 uh, by Wilhelm von Humboldt, who believed that a university was a place not simply to transmit, but to create knowledge, to create scientific research, the term Wissenschaft used equally in whether it's in the humanities and social sciences as in the natural sciences, the beginning of a scientific revolution in the world of universities. German universities were not particularly distinguished in this realm. Uh, before the founding of the University of Berlin. And it's founded not formally as the national university, but founded at a moment of national weakness in the case of Prussia. Prussia had lost uh, a major set of battles with Napoleon, and King Frederick William III said something rather remarkable for a political leader anywhere. He said, we will replace with intellectual strength what we have lost in physical strength. Uh, and he deputed Humboldt and Humboldt recruited others to found uh, and to recruit to Berlin, the greatest minds and greatest scholars and researchers across Germany. And over the, ti- over the course of the 19th century, a call to Berlin uh, became the high point of any academic's career, of course, largely to Germans because it's a German speaking university. And German universities educated the leaders of American universities in the 19th century and early 20th century. Very difficult to get a professorship in a leading American research university in the late 19th century without a German degree, or at least without having studied uh, in Germany. Uh, And so uh, there are many other things that have defined that university by Humboldt. One is what I just mentioned, Uh, They focus on research and the integration of research and teaching, the unity of research and teaching. A second feature uh, was academic autonomy, the capacity of a university to make its own academic decisions by and large, even if state-funded. Third, the centrality of the philosophical faculty, what we would call the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. Uh, in the the United States in leading uh, a university. And finally, what uh, Humboldt called Lehrfreiheit and Lernfreiheit, the freedom to teach and the freedom to learn, uh, a setting out standards of academic freedom uh, that have marked great universities everywhere since that time. Never perfectly enacted in Berlin or in any other German university, but... A, it is a remarkable invention of an institution that is, in many ways, new
1: in the nineteenth century. So, what exactly was it about the German universities that so influenced American universities? And actually, like actually, how did that influence actually get expressed when American universities were growing in the in the nineteenth century, in early twentieth century? I
0: mean, well, American universities been around a long time. You know, Ex- yes.
1: Yeah.
0: Harvard. Harvard was founded in the late Ming dynasty by Chinese historical terms. Um, And it was a fine college emulating British collegiate life and education with a required curriculum, but never cutting edge and never devoted to the creation uh, of knowledge until it began to emulate counterparts in Germany. Now... Uh, Hopkins, Johns Hopkins University, the University of Chicago, were the first to wholeheartedly embrace the German model and be, would be founded as graduate schools. And it isn't until at Harvard, the founding of the Graduate School of Arts and Sciences and the sending of many Harvard faculty to Germany for continuing education, as it were, uh, that Harvard became a university worthy of its name. It had been called the university since the 1630s, but it was really a college with a few small professional schools. But it became a serious research university in the second half of the 19th century by emulating the German model. Take the example of Stanford. Stanford University, founded in the latter part of the 19th century also, uh, has as its motto, a German motto, die Luft der Freiheit weht the wind of freedom blows." Not too many Stanford graduates today can probably pronounce that motto, but it is there uh, on many buildings uh, on that beautiful campus. And it is really through until, I would say it would be fair to say if we had rankings, university rankings then as we have today, probably certainly as late as 1913, but probably as late as the 1920s, eight of the top 10 universities in the world would be ranked as German universities, uh, with the other two being Oxford and Cambridge. Uh, And Harvard and its American counterparts uh, would be lucky to be in the top 20 or 30.
1: So I do wanna ask one question about Harvard and I will admit that I am a a Harvard alumnus of the college, not of the graduate schools, Um, but you know- Of whom
0: whom we are very proud.
1: Thank you, um, but, but but you know, what Harvard has this place now where it's kind of like if you ask a lot of people around the world, kind of what is the world's best university? Um, a lot of people outside of the U.S. would say Harvard, um, and yes. but that's obviously a reputation that's been built up over years, over decades, um, with a lot of people working together, kind of, yeah, to build up that reputation, that stature, um, that status. Uh, but also reputation that kind of covers a lot of Harvard's mistakes, some of which you kind of get at in in your book. Um, so I do want to just ask a question about like how has Harvard? And I know it's short to do with just in just one question, but how has Harvard been able to capture this kind of capture this status, this reputation as um, one of the, if not the world's premier academic institution?
0: It's a great and very complicated question. I'll try to handle it. Reasonably
1: quickly. Of
0: course, it's the oldest university in the United States. Uh, and as the, one of the two leading universities in New England, it educated, as by default, not too many other places to go, many of the American elite, particularly the 18th and, and, and 19th centuries. Um, at, and yet it becomes, it's International renown really has to do with the strength, not just of the college, which, or even primarily of Harvard College, uh, which is an undergraduate in- institution, almost exclusively, historically 90 plus percent uh, for uh, those already residing in the United States. But it's the growth of its professional schools and its graduate school of arts and sciences that recruits the best and the brightest from around the world. It's also the result of leadership, extraordinary leadership. Uh, The 40 year presidency of Charles Eliot, uh, who takes really a quite parochial college and with a few reasonably distinguished professional schools and makes it into a major research university uh, by the turn of the 20th century. Uh, And his successors, long-term successful presidencies uh, of 20 years uh, plus thereafter uh, solidify that reputation. Uh, but, if, but so, And resources, of course, matter, but a call to Harvard by the end, really by the middle of the 20th century is very much like a call to Berlin in the 19th century. But the lesson to take from this is a call to Berlin was without peer, without question, the epitome of a scholar's life in the 19th century. One could say the same for Harvard uh, by the end of the 20th century. And yet Berlin is not in that situation today. Uh, The point here is that nothing lasts forever. Great institutions can fall as well as rise. The fall of Berlin is very closely tied, of course, with uh, the tragedies of Germany in the first half of the 20th century. Uh, and in particular, if you recall that Stanford motto, die Luft der Freiheit, weit, the wind of freedom blows, well, the wind of freedom in Germany stopped blowing altogether in 1933 uh, as Germany descended uh, into Nazism and then for the Humboldt University uh, into a very parochial form uh, of Marxism-Leninism. Uh, for the much of the history of the Humboldt University. And so the fate of universities is tied also to the fate of nations. So no institution stays strong by standing still, and it is a constant challenge for Harvard uh, to reinvent itself. And there are many challenges, as anyone who reads this book at Harvard uh, that would be well, that would be known uh, to all who work and study here. The last thing I will say, and feel free, uh, by the way, Nicholas, just to use which parts of this make the most sense, okay? Um, the last thing that I show, say is that the reputation of Harvard, like that of Berlin in its way, is greater the further away you are from it. Uh, uh, I had one of my very best students, one of my very first students from mainland China came uh, uh, from uh, uh, Sichuan, where she had been partly homeschooled by her mother. Uh, she was so bright and so accomplished that her family thought that she ought to study abroad. And the only university that they had heard of was Harvard. So she applied to Harvard. She gets in. And. Um, and then her mother writes a book, Hafa High, Harvard Girl, effectively how my daughter got into Harvard, which would spawn all kinds of copycat books, Cornell Boy. Uh, there's one about her young, dumb little son gets into Oxford. There are many other kinds. Co- anyway, when I was dean of the faculty, uh, they, uh, the mother and daughter came to see me to thank Harvard for her education. And I had bought a copy of that book, Harvard Girl, Half a New I, in Shanghai, and I asked them to autograph it for me. And they refused, because as it turns out, I had bought a pirated copy, and they had lost you know, millions of sales to pirates. But they gave me a real copy, uh, very generously, and the mother is now a major proponent of intellectual property rights in China. So the Harvard education would have a, an interesting aftermath in that case. Did they at least sign the real copy? Absolutely, very generously.
1: Um, there's something in there that I actually want to, want to get at, and then I'd like to move on to the Chinese universities. But, but you had mentioned that earlier, you answered that like, there hasn't been a single kind of power that hasn't had strong research university component behind them. Um, and that's clearly true looking at the American example. Um, Harvard, the other universities are all wedded to to the U.S. state, Um, but also um, U.S. strengths in certain businesses. I mean, you can't talk about U.S. success in technology without talking about Stanford. How are universities and national power, economic power, how are these two things kind of wedded together?
0: Well, in the case of Harvard, but other leading American universities, very strongly, particularly beginning uh, before, during, and above all, after the Second World War. Um, uh, you know, Harvard has always been associated as, with, the, with the national narrative. George Washington had his headquarters uh, in what is now the president's office in Massachusetts Hall uh, and uh, colonial troops uh, of, the, of the Continental Army uh, were billeted in what is now Harvard Yard, uh, the old Yard. The uh, in the nineteen thirties and forties, uh, Harvard faculty were mobilized for the war effort for the Office of St- Strategic Services, the forerunner to the CIA. Uh, the Harvard president James Conant uh, was active in recruiting. Uh, scientists to work on the Manhattan Project, and this goes on in very uh, serious hand-in-hand development of science uh, and national power in the period of the Cold War, really until a fundamental break, at least from the point of view of the arts and sciences faculty and many students uh, during the Vietnam War. Uh, but today, of course, federal funding for science is as important for Harvard as it is for any major research university. Uh, so it is tied to that national narrative in a very large way, as it has, in, in dollar terms, as in a way that had not been for much of its first 300 years.
1: I'd like to move on to talk about the Chinese universities you, you discuss in your book. And I'm gonna rather inartfully kind of combine the two mainland Chinese universities together, even though I know they're different, they have different histories, um, different focuses, different backgrounds. Um, But you bring up two mainland Chinese universities in your book, Tsinghua and Nanjing. How do you see their stories kind of connected to the story of China? Well,
0: one Tsinghua, of course, is in the Northern capital in Beijing. Uh, uh, which was the capital of the Qing when Tsinghua was founded founded as a prep school to send young Chinese to the United States with return boxer indemnity money. And Nanjing University, of course, is in the southern capital, the capital that would become the capital of the Republic of China after 1927, uh, a university with deep roots and multiple different roots uh, 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 both from missionary colleges, as well as from government institutions. And it became uh, its central predecessor, National Central University, Guoli uh, became uh, one of the two leading research universities with Tsinghua uh, in the late 1920s and 1930s. And it is modeled very explicitly on the University of Berlin. This is a time of very close Chinese German relations, the 1920s and the 1930s. And you know that Nanda, as it was not yet called, as Zhongyang Daxue, uh, Zhongyan Daxue was modeled on Berlin because it has a replica Brandenburg Gate, welcome you onto the campus. And it's telling that this history still matters to Nanjing University, which would be forged out of these predecessors. In 1952, Nanjing University, uh, in its new campus outside of the city of Nanjing, has also erected a replica Brandenburg Gate in memory of National Central University and part of its lineage back to the great University of Berlin. So both of them, the point here is that both of them have international models and mentors to begin with. and at Tsinghua University, the first campus is modeled on the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, because it was the president of Urbana-Champaign that convinced the American president, Theodore Roosevelt, to remit boxer indemnity funds to found Tsinghua. It becomes a great research university uh, with international connections. My own teacher in graduate school, John Fairbank, I was his basically his last graduate student, John Fairbank learned his Chinese history at Tsinghua University in the 1930s under the great scholar Jiang Tingfu, the chair of the of the history department. They're a man who would go on to a very distinguished diplomatic uh, career. Uh, and, you know, it would, you know, of course, you can see the transformation of, almost every Chinese university in time uh, architecturally uh, by the different international influences. Uh, Tsinghua University looks like Urbana-Champaign in the 19 20s, and 30s. And then in the 1950s and 60s, it looks, at least its newer part, looks more like Moscow State given the Soviet influence. But the broad point here is that the intellectual and architectural origins of every major Chinese university are international in origin. They have grown up as part of the world of universities and grown in strength by their interaction
1: with the world of universities. You know, you personally have had a lot of experience kind of working with Chinese universities, working, in the, working with Chinese higher education. Um, I wonder if you might kind of share some of your own personal experience kind of seeing these universities um, grow and develop, especially in the past. I guess, a few years, few decades.
0: Well, I've had great opportunities in this. Um, in Hong Kong, um, I served for a decade on the University Grants Committee, uh, and I've been very active uh, working with the University of Hong Kong Ch- on a board of Chinese University of Hong Kong, with uh, Hong Kong Baptist University, and with Hong Kong Polytechnic University. Uh, but I came to know that sector extremely well from the work on UGC. Um, I've advised Duke University, I was the Duke's senior advisor on China in the establishment of Kunshan Duke Duke Kunshan University, a university that said you know, it is, as you know, your listeners may know, a liberal arts college, a residential liberal arts college in partnership with Wuhan University, in Kunshan, uh, one of the most entrepreneurial towns or small cities in China and it's if it is successful as i very much hope it will be uh, it has the prospect of being the yenjing university another powerful private institution uh in the 20th century it has the possibility of being the Yanjing university of the 21st century at Tsinghua university uh, i've known colleagues at Tsinghua and at Beida, of course for decades and decades and i strongly admire both of those institutions but I uh, very early on was part of the uh, conception and founding of what is uh, now Schwartzman College, Sushiman Shuyuan, as an advisor to Steve Schwartzman uh, and on the ac- chairing the academic advisory board of, Sh- of Schwartzman Scholars uh, for both uh, Mr. Schwartzman, but but under the direction of President Chen Jining and President Cho Yong, and I watched this extraordinary. Uh, operation go from concept to physical reality to an extraordinary uh, program, the would-be Rhodes Scholarship of the 21st century. And the ambition on Tsinghua's part, think of it, how remarkable it is. This is a university that was founded in 1907 to send Chinese away for an education. Now, with uh, this Sushiman Shuyuan, Schwarzman Scholars, it has its ambition to bring the best and the brightest of the world to Tsinghua University. The ambition is that the best and the brightest of the world are not going to want a Rhodes Scholarship. Why go even to a wonderful place like Oxford, where you will be in a cold, drizzly, a foggy, self isolating island off the coast of Europe when you could be in Beijing with beautiful blue skies at least every other day.
1: So, families
0: have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized.
1: You mentioned your work in Hong Kong, and I do want to kind of end our discussion of the various universities in your book with the University of Hong Kong. I am based in Hong Kong. In fact, the University of Hong Kong is like down the road from where I live. Um, You know, it's a university that both is and is not in some ways, you know, Chinese. Hong Kong's had, has gone through a lot of changes in what it, well, changes in its status. In its stature in the world and how it's seen in the world, certainly over the past 20 years, 25 years. How do you kind of see the future of the institution, you know, given Hong Kong's changing, complicated position? Well, let me start by prefacing it
0: and saying that in this book, I, I argue, you know, on the question, are can Chinese universities lead the world in the 21st century? And then the answer is a qualified yes, but not a perfect yes. Much depends on politics and almost everything depends uh, on the potential restraint of the Chinese Communist Party in the governing of great Chinese universities. We're in a moment of great tension right now. So this remains to be seen. So what distinguishes the university sector in Hong Kong uh, is of course, several things, Uh, largely, but not exclusively English speaking so more internationally oriented even than their mainland counterparts, especially than their mainland counterparts with a long and distinguished and separate history from the universities of the uh, of the mainland. The University of Hong Kong is founded in the same year as Tsinghua University in 1911, uh, founded of course as a British university uh, and uh, as the, the university of the colony and the university that really through the Second World War would educate virtually all of Hong Kong's uh, elites that would be educated uh, in Hong Kong. Since then, Hong Kong has developed a vibrant, really extraordinary higher education sector, very well-funded, very well-governed, particularly with this body of the University Grants Committee serving as a buffer between the government and the individual institutions with a lot of both local as well as international talent, uh, advising it. And even today, uh, Hong Kong has four universities ranked by the Times Higher Education in the top 100 in the world. HKU, number 30, CUHK, number 49, uh, Hong Kong University of Science and Technology, number 66, PolyU, number 91. That's actually quite a remarkable achievement for such you know, you know, such a compact place as Hong Kong. So these advantages, uh, say the advantage of the University of Hong Kong, which uh, Peter Matheson, uh, the former vice chancellor, and Shang uh, uh, Zhang, the current vice chancellor, uh, really believe can be Asia's global university. This depends on first and foremost, and actually the greatness of every university depends first and foremost on the capacity for self-governance. And what had distinguished Hong Kong universities from mainland universities until recent times was the absolute guarantee of academic freedom, the absolute guarantee of a a government that would be supportive but not intrusive politically into the affairs of the university, the capacity of the universities to appoint whom they wished uh, and to uh, uh, succeed as they would And this sadly has been eroded uh, first uh, in many ways across the sector a little bit, but in HKU in particular, because it is one in which the chief executive also serves by law as chancellor uh, of the university uh, and has exceptional powers uh, in controlling the council of the university, in fairness, Uh, British governors in the latter part of British rule or chief executives in the first period after 1997 understood that to be a chancellor is to be, how should we put it, is to be honorary, is to be an honorific position, as it is in Britain and all areas of the uh, British-influenced world. Uh, But in recent years, uh, and particularly under, under the previous chief executive, uh, or two previous chief executives, there's been much greater and direct uh, interference into the role of the university and into its governance, something that should give one great pause. I write about this in some detail in the book and some good stories in it, so I don't want to spoil readers uh, for it. But I think you know the success and failure of a great institution of higher education depends more than anything else on how well it is governed and how well it can chart its course for the future based on the criteria set out by its faculty and academic leaders. When that comes into question, when that becomes politicized, as we have seen in some mainland universities, uh, then, and as we saw in German universities in the 1930s and after, uh, then everything
1: is up for questioning. Um, I do want to say that the book contains lots of great stories that I very much enjoy reading and a lot of great lines that I will now be using in everyday life, including, what is it, one where you quote the minutes of the CCP meeting where, um, what was it, uh, the resolution passed unanimously, though many comrades were opposed. That's a line that I'll be using to describe many of my <laughs> meetings going forward. But I do, to, I do want to end with kind of a, a big picture, kind of forward looking question. You know, universities have had a... I I guess to say that they've had a tough time in the past two years would be a grave understatement. You know, students have had to work remotely due to COVID. Travel restrictions have caused international students to dry up. Sorry, that, that population to dry up, which I know has blasted a hole in a lot of university budgets. Geopolitical tensions are getting in the way of intellectual exchange. Um, I know those was the whole US-China initiative that happened that was ended earlier this year, which led to a lot of pressure on Chinese academics. A lot of academics I know would rather go home than face suspicion in the US, for example. So universities have had a really tough time in the past kind of two years. And the idea of kind of global intellectual exchange had a really tough time in the past few years. Kind of, what do you see, you know, as the future of of the global university, whether that's in the U.S. or in China or anywhere else in the world? that is, that's a great question,
0: a really important question, Nicholas. And I think it really gets uh, at the prospects of uh, higher education uh, going forward in the next several decades. Uh, The pandemic, of course, has limited interaction You know, I oversee our center in Shanghai uh, as a faculty member, but I have to do it remotely. Uh, For a while, that center was the only part of Harvard University that was open for real people on a regular basis. But now, as the rest of the university here has reopened, that center has been more closed than open because of the zero COVID policies uh, in in China. Uh, It's been very, very difficult. And if you take... Other periods of time uh, as, as examples, you know, the United States and China had close intellectual uh, and educational relations uh, before 1949. And then these were cut off almost ex- completely for 30 years to the benefit of neither country, certainly not to the benefit of China, but also not to the benefit uh, of the United States. And today, um, We see Chinese universities growing from strength to strength um, in part with very significant government funding, but also by the recruitment of Chinese scholars educated in every corner of the world, uh, uh, particularly in North America and in Europe, but also in Japan and in Australia and elsewhere, as 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 well as in China. And this internationalization, this recruitment of talent is key to their strength for a place like Harvard if we are not able to recruit the best talent possible in the graduate school of arts and sciences and in our professional schools these are schools so our GSAS here uh, uh, the arts and sciences graduate school we recruit scholars you know in chemistry in physics in history political science exclusively on the basis of merit And exclusively on the basis of merit, 45% of our graduate students are international. Uh, This university will become much less powerful and much less successful uh, as an engine of intellectual growth uh, if it is forced to be more parochial in its search for talent. And so we're in this moment, very sad and very dangerous moment, uh, of a Uh, beginning in the Trump years and then under uh, President Xi in China, of a uh, seemingly self-isolating United States, more truculent United States, um, and a self-isolating China, particularly once COVID uh, entered in, but a self-isolating and a mutual paranoia between the United States and China. But I can guarantee you this, uh, that for the world of universities, Uh, this is a recipe for decline. Uh, Universities that are not open to talent from around the world, that are not open to learn the lessons from the successes and failures of institutions from around the world, these will decline. And we know from Chinese history, if you look at the history and the catastrophe of Maoist rule, uh, a self-isolating China is a danger to itself and an enormous loss for the world. But the same can be said also of the United
1: States. So with that, that ends our interview with Bill Kirby, author of Empires of Ideas, Creating the Mar University from Germany to America to China. Bill, I actually have two final questions for you, which is where can people find your work? And what's next for you? Great
0: question. Well, the the book can be ordered, uh, uh, of course, from Amazon like everything else, but also uh, from Harvard University Press directly, Uh, there will be uh, a regular character translation uh, coming out of Taiwan, there will be a simplified character translation we are working on uh, for the mainland, not yet under contract, but very optimistic that that will happen uh, shortly. So it should be available in multiple formats. Of course, it's also available as an ebook. So, Uh, I I look forward to uh, individuals having the opportunity to read it and to communicate with them about what they like and what they don't like about it. For the next year, I will be researching two different topics, one of them about higher education internationally, experiments in higher education around the world and what the United States can learn from it. As readers of this book will know, the Americans became really good in higher education by learning from others, particularly from the Germans. Uh, today, very few American universities look abroad for models. What are the innovations, for example, uh, in, in Europe, uh, in the liberal arts and sciences education, for example, in the Netherlands, or in Britain with the extraordinary internationalization of the red brick universities, uh, or in Africa, or in South Asia, uh, this extraordinary experiment of the Asian University for Women in Bangladesh, uh, or in China, uh, or in Hong Kong. You know, Hong Kong, for example, uh, rather dramatically and with great success in the 334 reform, established a new general education curriculum for every Hong Kong university over the last 15 years. That's a remarkable achievement, and many of these universities have established, I think, extraordinary programs that would be worth for others to study. So that's project number one, and that's one that I have some significant optimism about. And the second one, I have optimism about completing, but not optimism about the topic. The second project is beginning to look through a series of business cases and uh, other cases on What does China look like, China's future in a de-globalizing world? My core belief as I go into this project is that China has grown and flourished when it is a part and partner of the international community and a China that is not connected well uh, to uh, the other leading sources uh, of economic development or in particularly of intellectual development uh, will find itself poorer as the result that's the working hypothesis but we shall see and uh, i very and i shall do that through a series first of harvard business school cases uh, and then through some other uh, forms of inquiry and i'll be doing all this in the fall semester as a visiting scholar out of the university of california at berkeley
1: Oh, that all sounds very exciting and very interesting. You can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at nickri_gordon. That's N I C K R I G O R D O N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network and NewBooksNetwork.com. The Every Podcast is on all of your podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those running in, around, and about Asia. Stay tuned for info info who's coming up on the show. But before then, Bill, thank you so much for joining me today.
0: It's uh, been a real pleasure, Nicholas. Thank you very much. Uh, Excellent and tough questions. I really appreciate it.